impactful stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome to another edition of the Sporting Life. Later in the show, with the U.S. Open taking place, the U.S. Open in tennis, we'll be speaking with Donald Dell, one of the fathers of the modern game of professional tennis. But first, six weeks ago, the Washington Post published a story in which 15 female former employees of the Washington football team laid out serious allegations of workplace harassment and mistreatment. In its wake, 25 additional women came forward to talk to the Post for a story that was published August 26th. They described an environment in which they were harassed, demeaned, and marginalized. And joining us now, one of the reporters who broke these stories for the Post, Liz Clark. Liz, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm delighted to talk about these issues um, and our coverage, which, of course, I I shared with my wonderful co-workers, Will Hobson and Beth Reinhart of The Post. Liz, what has it been like reporting these stories for the last couple of months? Certainly difficult, in some ways dispiriting. The, the, the difficulty largely relates to, I think, two factors. Many, many former employees of the Washington football team were required to sign non-disclosure agreements, either at the outset or the end of their terms of employment that prohibit them from speaking about their experience. So there is that legal barrier. There's also, we found widespread um, fear and concern about retribution from the owner for speaking out. So, you know, the first hurdle is helping people feel confident or or giving them space to feel confident to trust us with their stories. And then personally, as someone who was a beat writer for this team for eight years over a long span and is a woman who's worked in sports for three decades, you know, and just a human being, many of their stories were just difficult and heartrending to hear. How would you characterize what these women had to say to you about what it was like working in that culture, that environment of the Washington football team? Well, each is unique, but there's certainly some common threads. The thread that really affected me deeply was so many of these women started at the team as interns, and it led to uh, a first job. And they really thought uh, how lucky they were to get their dream job, a foot in the door, career in professional sports, yet they had no point of reference for what a professional workplace is like. And in turn, so many at one point or another told me that what they experienced, they just realized, they they assumed this was the price of admission for a woman if you wanted to have a career in pro sports, that you had to pretend you didn't hear comments about your appearance, your dress, the length of your skirt, what it was like to get text about, you know, are your boobs fake or real? And on top of that, institutionalized policies that limited literally where they could go in the building because the team perceived them as distractions to male players and male staff. So, you know, to say they were marginalized, denigrated, and had opportunities shut off from them, that's a pretty good summary. But it just tore me up for young people who really didn't know, no, this is not acceptable, and uh, and that's not, not how workplaces should be. We're speaking with Liz Clark of the Washington Post about the reporting she has been doing alongside her colleagues, Will Hobson and Beth Reinhart, about the culture 
uh, a culture described by former employees of the team as misogynistic, a culture in which they were demeaned and harassed and, as I said previously, marginalized. Such important reporting. And you mentioned that many of the women you spoke to uh, joined the team when they uh, were right out of school, hadn't had experiences in other environments. One of the women for whom the situation was a little different that we spoke to for Outside the Lines as well after she spoke to the Post is Alicia Klein, who was 27 when she spent a few months as an intern for the team in 2010, a decade ago. Uh, She had previously worked in the industry in her home country, Brazil. And what did she have to say as someone who knew what a corporate environment should look like? She was just kind of appalled. Um, She was a graduate student at at Georgetown, again, a a professional woman a little further along in her career, but she just couldn't believe how pervasive and normalized it was in this space that male executives just felt it was their prerogative to constantly remark and critique on her appearance and that of others. And, you know, although she's she's obviously self-possessed and accomplished, it was demeaning and embarrassing for her to discuss it because it was a huge achievement, on the other hand, that she had this opportunity for an NFL team. So she didn't want to deny that she worked there or deny that she had this great foot in the door. It just wasn't what she expected or anyone should expect. And I should say, Liz, that the reporting The Post has done here has already made an impact in terms of people losing their jobs within the organization, leaving their jobs also within the organization, even before the first story was published in July. How would you describe the way the team has responded thus far to the reporting? And where do you think this is going? A significant reason why this behavior was so normalized and accepted was because the team never had a legitimate fully trained, properly staffed, funded HR department. So at every turn, women had no place to go, whether they were young women and weren't sure that getting abusive, harassing text was okay or not, or more accomplished women. I mean, there was one young intern who did file a complaint against a scout who was harassing her and the CFO of the company who oversaw the single person running HR just said point blank, you know, this is a male-dominated workplace and you can either avoid this guy who's harassing you or you can quit. So she quit. So when we speak to how has the team responded, what will happen, I think it's reasonable to think that at least one thing that will happen is that there will be a, a professional, fully staffed, funded HR department that employees don't have to fear going to. But, you know, the team has done some quite consequential things this summer alone. You mentioned two people who were fired as a result of this reporting. A third was allowed to retire on the eve of our reporting. But again, those are three people in an entire workplace that was off the rails, I think, by any measure. But notably, the team has hired a president in Jason Wright, who played in the league, maybe not a household name as a player, but has an incredibly accomplished background as a business executive. And he has been brought on to be president of the team with the mandate of setting a culture, a professional culture. And 
the team had gone eight or nine months without either a president or a GM, which is fairly mind-blowing for an NFL team. So Jason Wright has been brought on board, and he also happens to be the first African-American NFL team president. And then they hired a woman named Julie Donaldson with an impressive broadcast background to be senior vice president of the broadcasting department. So there's another significant step toward diversity there. They have a new coach in Ron Rivera, who has walked the walk of being a principled person at every turn as a coach and as a, as a public face of the team. So you can point to three leaders of this organization that, by all accounts, have their priorities, <laughs> sensitivities, commitments where they should be. So they certainly deserve a chance to set the culture in, in a good direction. So that has happened. And then notably, after the first report of the 15 women who were reporting being sexually harassed and victim of these unwelcome overtures. Dan Snyder announced he was hiring an outside law firm, the very accomplished lawyer, Beth Wilkinson in particular, to lead an investigation of the culture and to make recommendations about that. We've since learned, I think initially many former employees were wary of that because it was his choice and the implication was this report would be given to the owner of the team. So so there was a good bit of wariness. Uh, would people be safe speaking to her? And what would happen if they had signed NDAs and spoke to her? There's just a lot of uncertainty. But the league, after our second report, has confirmed that, in fact, they are either taking over this investigation or they are really the driver here, that this investigation, the findings will come to the league. So there's no evidence that the league is trying to whitewash this. And if there were an effort to whitewash this, the league is not going to let that happen. And then anecdotally, I'm hearing from people, notably a lawyer, Lisa Banks, who with her law partner, they are representing more than 15 of the women, I think at this point, with claims. They have had interactions with the league to that have left them confident that this will be a meaty, open investigation. And then back to that issue of the NDAs, the team has granted a very narrow release from the NDAs for, for the sole purpose of speaking to Beth Wilkinson. So that is a significant step. A lot to digest, as as we know, but two very important stories that are already um, shaking up uh, uh, the team and have, of course, led to the investigation that is now being, as you say, supervised by the NFL, uh, undertaken by the Wilkinson-Walsh law firm in D.C., Liz Clark has been doing this important reporting along with her colleagues, Will Hobson, Beth Reinhardt, and Dalton Bennett. Uh, Liz, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeremy. All the best. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. If you know anything about softball, you know that Kat Osterman was one of the greatest pitchers, remains one of the greatest pitchers in the history of the game. This was just posted a few days ago on NCAA.com. 
Cat is absolutely one of the best pitchers of all time. End of statement. Osterman left an unbelievable legacy on Texas softball. She's still leaving her mark as a pitcher now for the U.S. softball team, a three-time National Player of the Year, back-to-back Honda Award winner for the best player in college softball, an Olympic gold medalist, an Olympic silver medalist. It's a pleasure to welcome to the Sporting Life, Cat Osterman. Cat, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. You're 37 now. What is it like being a 37-year-old in this game? It's kind of surreal. I didn't expect to be playing this long. Obviously, I actually retired in 2015 and unretired, and that wasn't really in the plans, but it, it happened. And, you know, I'm enjoying it, but it's definitely a, bit, a different perspective being older and obviously surrounded by majority of the athletes. I'm at least probably six, seven years. I think the closest is within six years of me. So it's a different experience, but at the same time, being around so many younger athletes, it keeps it fun and lively and uh, gives me less time to think about how old I am, to be honest. (laughs) Well, in terms of your situation with the 2020 Olympics that, of course, were postponed, what were your thoughts about participating in the tournament in Japan? I mean, it was disappointing. Don't get me wrong. I think we're all looking forward to it. And, you know, being 37, I had kind of started to put some plans in place for what was next, but those plans got disrupted anyways because of the pandemic. So, you know, it works out that what I wanted to do isn't really going to be available and I get to play softball for another year. And uh, I think there's probably some fans that are pretty happy about that. I know my husband is. He enjoys watching me play. So he bats no eye when I say, hey, I have this opportunity to go play. He says, all right, go. So it was disappointing. But at the same time, you know, it's just one of those, you kind of have to roll with the punches and You know, it's opened some doors. While it closed some doors, it's opened some doors to other opportunities um, like I am right now with Athletes Unlimited. Yeah, and we're going to get to that. It's it's fascinating, the tournament you're going to be part of, the month-long tournament taking place. And we're speaking with uh, Kat Osterman, who is... The consensus choice is one of the handful of greatest players in the history of softball. Is it your sense now? I mean... 2021 is supposed to be happening. What are you hearing as an Olympian about the preparations? It's not necessarily going to be an easy thing for the organizers to pull off. No, I don't think it's going to be easy, especially with, I think, you know, everything changes almost daily in regards to COVID. But to be honest, I don't think we get any news much earlier than the general public. So um, haven't heard a whole lot other than we're, you know, we're just continuing to keep our focus on next July. They have set dates and game times and all of that. So they're at least starting to set things in in place. Um, And then I think they're just trying to, I think everyone's holding out hope there might be a vaccine of some sort. But, you know, again, we haven't gotten any detailed information. And Kat, tell us about the Athletes Unlimited Softball League, which is getting underway this week. You know, it's a really unique setup. We have 56 of the best softball players um here in rosemont illinois and basically we draft into four teams each week compete against each other get ranked based on the points we earned which points can be earned um, based on your individual performance you know hitters get points for single double triple home run fantasy style yep it's literally i keep saying it's fantasy sports in real life so to speak um but then we also earn points based on like if you're if your team wins the inning or the game you get points that way too so Sometimes there'll be people who won't play, but we'll get more points because they're team one. So it's kind of a fun, a fun mix. And we got to do two scrimmages with the point system. And um, it was interesting to see how it all played out. But um, then, yeah, the top four players each week get to, to draft a new team and you get to do it all over again. So we're going to do that for five weeks. And, you know, at the end where you're ranked is, is 
basically what tells you what your bonus is at the end of the season. And um, I think we're all looking forward to it. And, and you know, uh, sports fans now become familiar with the WNBA bubble and the NBA bubble and the NHL bubble. What What is the situation for you guys in terms of minimizing risk? Yeah, so they call it the Athletes Unlimited Shield um, instead of a bubble, but it's just, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, we all have residence, residences where we're pretty much told, you know, wearing a mask and indoors at all times unless you're in your own room by yourself. We can socialize with each other outside, obviously maintaining six feet of distance. And then obviously we're not allowed to go to stores or, you know, restaurants or anything like that. So some days they have food for us. Others we've been, you know, using uber eats and instacart delivery and stuff like that but we also get covid tested twice a week so um they've been very uh, proactive on that front and they prepared us for worst case scenario way a long time ago knowing that you know we probably won't have fans won't be able to go places so we weren't surprised coming in which is good but so far i think i mean it's gone really well everyone's adhering to the guidelines and to be honest when we're getting to play our sport i think we're all pretty happy that we're just being able to go to the field and get out on the field again and instead of practicing in our own backyards or driveways or whatever we had access to prior to getting here. So it's been good, and I think we all feel really safe with the precautions and the procedures they have in place. We're speaking with Kat Osterman, the legendary softball pitcher. Seven of these games will be on the CBS Sports Network. 23 will be on ESPN Networks. What does that exposure mean to this fledgling league, the Athletes Unlimited the inaugural season of this league? You know, I think it's huge. I know, I mean, obviously having been part of pro softball in the past, we would have stints where we would have a few games here and there on one news station or the other. You know, both ESPN and CBS Sports have been part of the NPF in the past. But for Athletes Unlimited to get that many games on networks, is it's huge for us. I mean, we have a great, we have a great sport. It just needs the exposure. Um, we have fans that love it and they want to be able to see it. And so for us to be able to, you know, let those fans be able to sit sit at home and watch it and not have to hook your computer up to a TV just to feel like you're watching it or something like that, um, it's a huge step. And I think hopefully uh, we gain some new fans and you know, p- people get to learn about this new league, which actually is going to launch volleyball too in February. And so it'll be a new, a new aspect of professional sports that I think your common fan will really enjoy because you can follow your favorite athlete as opposed to team and see what they do each week and what their team essentially as it changes does each week. And, you know, again, I think fantasy sports is so big now that um, when you get to kind of watch it unfold in real life and follow along, it should be uh, a different experience, but I would hope an enjoyable one. Well, it sounds like it's going to be uh, a lot of fun to watch. A 30-game season gets underway August 30th, Sunday through September 29th. The Athletes Unlimited Softball League featuring among 56 great players, the legend Kat Osterman. Kat, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with this season-long tournament, 30-game tournament. Thank you very much. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Brought to you by Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Very few people played a larger role in the world of tennis over the last half century plus than our next guest, Donald Dell. As a player, as an executive, as a marketing guru, as an agent, he's made a huge impact on the game. It is a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life the International Tennis Hall of Famer, Donald Dell. 
Mr. Dell, thank you for being with us. Uh, it's great to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. You were a great player in college at Yale. You were a professional in the early days uh, of the sports professional boom. You, as an agent, uh, helped create not just the modern world of tennis, but the modern world of sports marketing. And since the advent of the agent-player relationship 50 years ago, you created the model in so many ways. When you look at the landscape of sports now, how much do you recognize as your creation? Well, you know, a couple things. Normally, obviously, with the passage of time and improvements, things change. Uh, I was very lucky, uh, Jeremy. I was the Davis Cup captain in 68 and 69. And I had two, I had a great team and a great squad. We were undefeated. I was the youngest captain ever. And in 1970, January, I resigned from the Davis Cup because the game of tennis had just gone open in 68. And so some of the players wanted to turn and become pro. So I really was in 70, January, when I started the law practice, I had a law practice of Donald Dell, just me and my secretary. I was the first really tennis agent uh, in the whole world. So I did have a head start. And uh, for the first six years, we had a law firm called Dell, Craigiel, Fentress, and Benton, four of us uh, partners in a law firm. And then about 1986, 80, excuse me, 76, 77, we changed the marketing arm of the law firm to ProServe because we found as lawyers, uh, and we were all you know accredited lawyers and passed the bar and so forth, we couldn't uh, solicit, we couldn't recruit, we couldn't publicize or do any advertising or buy insurance. And so it just didn't work. So we decided to really make it a, a commercial company called Professional Services. Not so much uh, because it was tennis, but just ProServe was the shortened version. So, you know, I got into it in a, in a major way. And, and my first two clients uh, were Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, who had been on my Davis Cup team. And so not bad. Yeah, they really, uh, they were, you know, what I always said, they were great people and good players. And I uh, emphasize the people. They were fabulous uh, people. And my biggest competitor in the 70s was uh, a guy named Mark McCormick, who most people know. Uh, I started IMG. He was in golf, and he had three great players, Palmer, Player, and Nicholas. And so he stayed in his lane in golf, and I stayed in tennis until, the, you know, about 1980. And then we both sort of crossed over and he signed Borg. Uh, we signed a lot of basketball players. And, uh, uh, you know, we got very, very involved as a company in other sports. One of our first players was Michael Jordan for 10 years. He was my client. And uh, we had Patrick Ewing, uh, James Worthy, Phil Ford, Ralph Sampson, Wally Walker. I mean, we had a lot of very, very good high, you know, high-ranked players in the ACC. So ProServe in the 70s and 80s really grew and grew and grew. And as I say, our biggest competitor was IMG Globally. There were just the two of us. And I became, you know, good friends with Mark. Our, our staffs were very competitive. But Mark and I became pretty good friends. And we would meet twice a year very quietly at the Creon Hotel in Paris at the, US, at the French Open and then in New York at the U.S. Open. So marketing, I always thought of Mark really as the pathfinder. Uh, he really started about five years, six years ahead of me, and I copied a lot of the things he did in marketing and packaging and media. But I think, Jeremy, to really try and answer your question, the biggest difference then to now, we were really, both IMG and ProSer were one-stop shopping. I mean, we literally did endorsements, exhibitions, clinics, and then we did all kinds of marketing, 
Uh, we did uh, television commercials. I was a television commentator, did five years at Wimbledon, six years at the French Open. So we were, we were doing a lot. We did some financial management. We did taxes and investments, which I always thought was a mistake because we weren't really that qualified. So after three years, I had a company called ProServe Financial Services, which managed some of the players' money. It was optional. And we closed it down after three years because I didn't really feel we could give them the best service that, you know, other big companies could. We didn't have a research department like that. And it was really done for client management, client control, rather than anything else. And so we had to close it down. I also had a company called ProServe Television, based in Dallas, uh, Texas. And that was a that was a huge arm of the ProSur. And we did 43 Olympic shows uh, back in the late 80s. And we did all, all kinds of We did the Pro Tour on the Volvo Grand Prix. We did a lot of tennis broadcasting. We did Monday night with uh, WGBH on PBS, Monday night tennis for four years. That was before there was ever even a Monday night football. It, it's fascinating, Donald, that we're speaking with Donald Dell, not only the Tennis Hall of Famer, but one of the most influential people on the modern sports landscape. That's unquestionable. And now you look around and you see all these colleges have sports marketing programs and degrees. I, I seem to meet kids all the time and young people, they want to work in sports market. Before you and Mark McCormick came along, the term barely existed. There was Tex Rickard, right? Jack Dempsey's manager in the 19-teens and 20s, who in some ways is the godfather of the modern sports business. But you guys came along, and in, that, in the last half century, you took an industry and you professionalized it and you monetized it. Did you ever think it would, it would get to where we are now? Well, when I started, my goal was very simple. I wanted to see tennis, pro tennis, which had just gone open in 68. I wanted to see people around the world who were top players. Would, you know, when people say to you, well, what do you do besides play tennis? Because before that, they were sort of pro, uh, semi-amateurs. I mean, you were semi-pro amateurs who were getting paid under-the-table expenses. And in 66, when I retired, you know, I was making like, $200 a week. That's what I netted on my basis of my ability. And I, so I wanted to change the sport and try to get it professional. You know, where I had a younger brother, 10 years younger, was playing the tour. I said, I want people to say, what do you, I'm a professional tennis player, just like the golfers. I'm a pro golfer. And so that was my dream in 70 when we started this. But I never dreamed that it was going to explode to the extremes it has now. I mean, and what's really changed, a couple things. One, you mentioned about sports marketing at the college level. And that's a huge program now, probably in three or 400 schools, colleges. And so the whole idea of sports and using... Are there that many jobs out there, Don? I mean, it always amazes me. I mean, there must be, right? Or people wouldn't be getting degrees in it. Well, what's happened is the one-stop shopping that McCormick and I started has really been diluted to where, you know, you have now specialists. You have a financial management group in sports and they recruit like mad because the money is so big. They're trying like crazy to get clients for just doing their finances. And then you have marketing companies that just do marketing. There's a couple now that do television. There's some that still like we did was talent, but we did all those when we started. And today, when we started, there were two or three, you know, Octagon came along five or six years later. Today, there are 500 companies doing the three areas, you know, of talent, television, and alt media, and then, of course, uh, endorsements and marketing. 
Well, there's probably 500 companies now doing it, but they're all specialized. You'll have some. We have a guy in, in our company, the CEO, Joel Siegel. He's a phenomenal recruiter. He, he has 68 players in the NFL, but that's what he focuses on, recruiting young players to play in, in pro sports, in pro football, in the NFL. And he's been enormously successful. Joel Siegel is one of the named people in the sport. Others have marketing experts. I do nothing today uh, in talent. I do mostly in television and television negotiations and some marketing with sponsorship. But it's been diluted, and it's really made the, the whole area grow faster and faster. Because when you have, you know, three or 400 other companies out there, then you have colleges that want to teach the course. For example, I teach a course called Sports Law at law school, at the University of Virginia Law School. And I've been doing that for 22 years, and I really enjoy it. And Your alma mater. Yeah. I, well, I went to Virginia Law School and came back a few years later and am and, and teaching there. Uh, and I love it because there's a great feeling back and forth with the students. A lot of those students, I'd say many of them, all lawyers, but many of them gone into sports law. Well, you know, 25 years ago, big firms weren't hiring lawyers out of law school for sports law. They are today. I mean, that's what's changed. It's been diluted. It's been moved into different special. Everything's become specialization. And that's made the whole sport world grow and grow. I mean, look what's happening in football and basketball. And the numbers are staggering for the salaries. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and more at Progressive.com. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Again, we are joined by the Tennis Hall of Famer, the giant of the sports marketing and endorsements and strategic partnership universe, Donald Dell. Donald, again, thank you for being with us. We were talking about the explosion of this industry in our last segment. But specifically, I wanted to also speak to you about your recommendation. And again, you were one of the people behind the founding 48 years ago of the professional tennis tour, the ATP, which was followed the next year by the creation of the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. And you think it is now, after a half century, high time for structural change in this game, uh, which has meant so much to you and to, and to the game that you have meant so much to. What, what needs to change now, Donald? You have to really understand what's happened over these 50 years and why, the, why a, a merger would be so successful and so helpful. Number one, when Jack Kramer and I together founded uh, the ATP in 1972, it was a player only. In other words, it was a union for players. And in 1989, Hamilton Jordan, who was the executive director of the uh, ATP, had come from White House with Jimmy Carter, who's the chief of staff. He decided in 89, he was in fights with some of the federations. The federations are like the Olympic Committee. They want to control the sport. And the pros coming up, like McCormick and myself, we didn't want them to control it because they never promoted it. So you look at 89, and Hamilton put up a thing called and described a thing called the ATP Tour, which is what it is today. And it's, it's a partnership between tournaments and players. There's a board, three player reps and three tournament reps, and the chairman has the casting vote. So this is a partnership. And both sides are supposed to be 50-50 equal in the partnership. Well, and then the women have come along and, and stayed as just a professional women's association, but they have some more 
tie-ins with the ITF. They have three more council members on some of their boards. So they're still more directly involved with the four slams. But what's happened over the years is that ATP has gotten stronger and stronger, and they really have built their brand name. They really run the professional men's tour everywhere except the four slams. The four grand slams are not involved with the tour. And if you look at it closely, they're all co-ed, the, the slams. They're very, very popular, very, very financially successful. The U.S. Open in America normally can net as much as 300 to $350 million in one season. So the enormity of the slams, Wimbledon's probably even stronger than that financially. So I came along oh, six months ago. Is I read an article where Billie Jean King, who's a great friend of mine, and Roger Federer, who I don't know well, took the lead and said, you know, we ought to have a merger of the WTA and the ATP. Why? It's like alphabet soup. You've got the ATP. You've got uh, the Davis Cup. You've got the Federation Cup for Women. You've got the USTA. You have the Italian Federation. You have so many individual governing bodies that they all sort of fight for their turf. They want to, and you got the agents, you got 15 different companies who are agents. There's three or four that are big and I think are the best. So everything is floating. And in the process, if you look at, I'm just looking at tennis and promoting tennis. If you look at it in Europe and Asia, it's two or three in any television rating. Soccer is king and tennis or basketball second or third in, in many of the countries. Yet, if you turn to America, tennis is like 10 or 11 on the media chart. So it's way down the list. So to me, what you ought to try and do, and and you're going to need really strong individual leadership, particularly from the men's side. In today's game, the top four, Roger Federer, Andy Murray, Rafael Nadal, and of course, Djokovic, the best player, they've all been really statesmen. They've tried to really help the game, help the lesser players. Uh, and really lead the way. Well, Federer and I hope Nadal have sort of decided it would be good to merge the two with the women. Now, it's going to take tremendous leadership to get that done because there's probably a group of 10% of the players, maybe more, that really don't want co-ed events, really don't want a merge ATP-WTA. Why? Because they think that the women, the top women stars, they merge will come on and take up more of the air, you know, and they'll take up more of the prize money, more of the events. I don't agree with that. I think it will, it will make this sport bigger because the co-ed events have been so successful. And, Jeremy, I use Washington as an example. I ran, it was owned by the Tennis Federation in Washington, and I ran it for 50 years. I started in 1969. I gave the sanction to the WTF, and I ran it for them. And Donald, let me just remind our, our listeners who we're talking to. We're speaking to Donald Dell, the Tennis Hall of Famer, the founder of ProServe, one of the most influential people in the modern sports industry. Continue, Donald. Well, what happened, I ran a men's only event for 42 years at Washington. And suddenly I got a title sponsor called Citibank, which was a terrific sponsor. And they say, hey, wait a minute, 51% of our clients are women. So if we're going to sponsor your tournament, at the numbers you're asking, we want a women's event. And so nine years ago, we founded a women's event, got the sanction from the WTA, got on the tour. And we had a lesser event, actually, for women. It was 250 because under their rules, they already had an event out in California at Stanford, which was putting up $700,000 prize money. We only had to put up 250. 
But in nine short years, I came to realize how powerfully helpful the women were in promoting the sport. And as the tournament city open developed and matured, people called in all the time saying, you know, what time is Sloan Stevens going to play? What, you know, and they'd pick out names that they had heard or seen and it just, it complemented the men. So if you had a couple upsets in the men, you still had very good women. And so it balanced the field and it balanced for the tennis fan and they loved it in Washington. So I sort of became a late converter to it. I really do believe that the co-ed events, if they took the 500 series and said, let's get them all co-ed, one or two are of the 500s. I think three of them are co-ed. But if you made all 11 of the 500 series, which is the second one right below the 1,000 series, I think it would explode the game both television-wise and in America. And I'm trying to figure out ways to build the sport back stronger, both globally but more importantly in America. Yeah, when I was a kid, of course, I'm 51 you know, tennis um, was enjoying here in the U.S. with so many great American players. Uh, it, it was it was a top five sport, and, and the TV ratings were through the roof. And I know you and Billie Jean King and Roger Federer uh, um, with this idea of merging the WTA with the ATP it seems to make sense to me. But of course, you know a lot more about the game uh, than I do. Um, we're going to have to cut it. Uh, well, it, it'll be, Jeremy, it'll be difficult, though, because everybody wants to protect their turf. And so there'll be a lot of skeptics that say, well, how does that benefit the sport? But, you know, in, in American tennis today, the women have been very dominant, great young players, and the Williams sisters have been phenomenal, Serena and Venus. I mean, they've just carried the women's sports for 10, 12 years. But on the men's side, you know, when, when I was growing up, we had Ash and Smith, then we had Sampras and Agassi, we had Jim Courier. I mean, we've had a ton of very good players. Andy Roddick came along. He carried the men's side for a while. But the American tennis today, we only have four players ranked in the top 100 on the ATP computer. Well, that's pathetic. I mean, yeah, among the men, we have four. No, it's, um, it's unbelievable. Who would have thought when Roddick won the Open, what was that, in 02? Here we are 18 03. years later. Won, yeah. 03. Yeah. I'm sorry, 17 years later, the last American man to win a grand slam it's 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 uh, it would have been unfathomable in the 80s or the 90s uh donald it's it's really been an honor having you on the show um and appreciate your insights we hope you can uh, come back and join us again soon well jeremy i've enjoyed it as you know i love your dad uh he was special and so i'm happy to do it oh thank you donald dell